0: A slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles, Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear and that's where W E A R and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at Vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old flame mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer, but Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro business. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylan Page Life and Style. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and ham tramic, with a new Detroit location coming soon. See more on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Wide Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that owns way too many t-shirts, although my husband owns twice as many as I do. I'm your host, Amanda. Hey, it's another episode. Today's episode will feature the second half of my conversation with Jackie, a graphic tea designer We'll be talking about knockoffs an awful lot because, as you know by now, all the entire industry does is copy itself. It's so bizarre and... I wonder how many times you can make a copy of an idea before it turns into something else. Also in this episode, we'll be talking to Kyle about gentlemanly style, and we have a phone call from Anne of Oregon, which is not to be confused with Anne of Green Gables. (laughs) Before we do any of that, we have to thank our newest Patreon supporters. First is Alexandra Stevens, who sells Vintage Online as St. Evans. She's a new Pegasus sponsor, so look for her information in the intro to our next episode. I also just recorded a conversation about how to identify vintage items at the thrift store with her. You basically have to be a history detective and alex is i can't wait to share it with you next month she's so knowledgeable in fact she's such an expert that i'm hoping she'll be a regular contributor to the clothes horse blog thank you so much for your support alex also new to the patreon squad is lily crown wilder who i'm pretty sure is our first patron from virginia lily sells cool upcycle diy kits to make things like candles and miniature gardens in her online shop Bug Bug Club. She's also doing a rad candle making workshop coming up soon, so you should check it out. You know, one of my favorite things about quarantine, yes, there are things about quarantine that I'm enjoying. Maybe because I always like to see the bright side, maybe because I'm secretly an introvert. Anyway, one of my favorite things about kind of being stuck at home now for, you know, close to a year is I've been learning so much new stuff. Like, you know, I learned how to do audio editing, for example, maybe learning how to make candles could be one of your new skills. So you should go check out Bug Bug Club. Thank you so much for your support, Lily. If you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. I'll include that link in the show notes because, like, why would you remember that? (laughs) If Patreon is not your thing, you can also Venmo me at crystal underscore visions, If you follow my personal Instagram, it's the same name, so it'll be easy to find one or the other. And as always, you do not need to spend a dime to support Close Horse. Seriously, I cannot say that enough. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can tell your friends. But really, most importantly, you can keep listening because does a podcast even exist if there's no one listening to it? Wow, we're getting some really deep stuff today. (laughs) Do you hear that totally imaginary sound? It's the Clothes Horse Hotline ring, and it's Anne calling from Oregon. Hey,
1: Amanda. This is Anne from Oregon. I love the podcast so much. Um, I'm calling because I'm hosting to today's episode and talking about dress codes. Because um, I totally agree with you dress codes are like sexist, racist, classist. Um, and it made me think of a storyline from season 13 of DeGrasse. Uh, such a great show, and you can watch this for free on YouTube. Um, so uh, the storyline starts season 13, episode 19, and goes at least two, maybe three episodes. Um, but Imogen, one of the characters, she shows up to school, like, is running late and isn't wearing a bra in her class and gets in trouble for not wearing a bra, even though she's not doing anything to, like, bring attention to the fact that she's not wearing a bra. She's just, like, existing in a female body, not wearing a bra. And, of course, she calls bullshit on this. Um, because she realizes, like, that's fucking sexist, like, how is that inappropriate for me to not be wearing something? Isn't it more inappropriate to be ogled at? Um, so she does a couple protests, one where she, like, wears her bra on her outside of her shirt to, like, prove, make a point, and so Simpson, being, like, a really good principal, uh, asks her to be in charge of the dress code. Um, and it's a really cool episode about, like, what does she want to say, uh, because, she's in charge of this thing but she of course doesn't want to make it sexist or anything and what she comes up with is like I can't remember the exact words right now I'm totally gonna like end up rewatching these episodes after this um but the dress code is something like all students should dress in a way that is respectful to themselves and others I like it's so nice because like you were saying I think people will dress like in a way that's comfortable for them and like respectful to themselves, like I think that's like the big thing um if we give people like if we give them the trust to dress how they want like I'm sure most people will dress in a way that's you know clean and put together' because I think people like to look nice for each other, especially when we're out in public um unless you're like super comfortable or maybe if you really don't care then you'll show up with whatever but I think people have a good gauge of um what would make themselves comfortable and like their customers or their coworkers. I just really liked that episode because it was, you know, like good. I, I feel like a very feminist message of like respecting yourself. Uh, that was like the basis of Imogen's dress code. Anyway, love DeGrassi. This is free on YouTube. Like all of DeGrassi is free on YouTube. Um, definitely helped me get through earlier parts of the pandemic, and I love the
0: podcast so much. All right, sorry to be rambling. Thank you. Have an awesome day. Thanks for calling, Anne. You know, I've been thinking about watching Degrassi for a while because I keep hearing cool people talking about it. Maybe Jem and I should watch this episode and dissect it. I'm definitely thinking Degrassi's gonna be my next quarantine binge watch. Anyway, I do truly believe that we can trust people to dress, quote, appropriately for work. I mean, we're all social creatures we take cues from those around us. And I don't think we need to be treated like children. You know, I said in the last episode that I'd really never had to deal with a dress code other than when I, you know, made coffee. But I remembered later that I went to a private school with a very strict dress code. I don't know how I forgot that. Boys had to wear collared shirts and pants every day, like nice pants, you know girls had to wear dresses or skirts of a certain length we weren't allowed to wear sneakers or sandals obviously jeans were off-limit once a year we could all pay five dollars to wear jeans to school one day and then that money was donated to a local charity and of course we all like really brought it on those days right it was like the biggest day of the year i think it was always on a friday But the dress code was really stressful for me because, you know, I was poor and I was a scholarship kid and my mom wasn't going to take me to the Bon ton or whatever for these like future business leader clothes that we were supposed to wear. So instead, I bought a ton of secondhand school uniforms at the thrift store and I wore those on most days because technically they fit the dress code. The skirts were always the right length, the blouses were collared, and everything was appropriately modest. Of course, I totally looked like a super weirdo, but it was a way that I could meet the dress code while also affording it. And I was thinking about this as I was falling asleep the other night, as you do, right? And I think that this was the beginning of a lifelong approach of mine that was like, hey, I'm poor. I can't afford, quote, designer clothes. So I'm just going to do something so different that it won't matter. So for most of my career, rather than buying the very expensive clothing that my coworkers were wearing, and I don't even know how, honestly, I just wore interesting vintage clothing. Maybe people could still pick up on the fact that I had less money because you know what? I did. I had a kid. I had student loans. And I was paying my entire family's phone bill. Yes, it was five people. So I just didn't have as much disposable income. I definitely couldn't buy crazy. Like I couldn't buy Celine flats to wear to work, you know. I also just really love interesting vintage clothing. So it's not even like, I don't know, to me it was like this stuff is more who I am. It's more fun to get dressed, you know. A lot of that really expensive stuff is kind of (laughs) neutral. That's not my style. Anyway, I have another potentially controversial and hot take here, which is i think if a school or a workplace is going to have like these crazy draconian dress codes that make life hard for lower income students and workers then i think they should just institute a uniform i know that sounds bonkers for a workplace but it's very common in japan where many professions have uniforms even some office workers The uniforms are provided by the employer, along with locker rooms for changing. So you don't even wear the uniform home. You just wear it while you're at work. Yes, of course, that stifles personal expression. But imagine how much money that saves for the workers. Once again, a hot and no doubt controversial take. I would love to hear what all of you think about it. Well, moving on. Next up is a conversation with Kyle. You might remember him. I mean, who could forget? as the caller who introduced us to gentlemanly style. I called him up to talk a little bit more about, you know, gentlemen. We talked a lot about Campari, I feel like.
2: (laughs) Why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? I mean, everybody's gonna know your voice right away, but you're an expert here.
3: Hi, everybody, Uh, I'm Kyle Decker. I, uh, as of now, I'm an actor and singer uh, and writer in New York City, Uh, I used to um work in uh, clothing retail. I used to sell like men's who the men's clothing at like an outlet store and I've been like an enthusiast uh towards like men men's fashion and men's wear in general for a really long time. Um but like at this point I don't know if I'm like an expert. I don't know. I feel I should qualify and say like I I'm not like a historian but I'm an enthusiast for sure.
2: We won't we won't everybody lower your expectations here. But <laughs> You did call in with, like, you talked about this whole sort of genre, if you will, of a subculture, I guess, of men's dressing that I found so fascinating that I believe you called trad? Trad? Oh,
3: yeah. Um, So, yeah, well, so it's interesting because, like, outside of, like, men's fashion, um, there's, like, the whole world of, like, men's style. And it's, like, men who are dressing, like, you know, for themselves and uh, because like you know there's this fundamental idea that like men aren't into fashion, like we don't use right. do fashion, hate that. I hate it too, <laughs> but you know that's like a deep seated cultural thing, and so like in order to sell clothes to men, everybody's always talking about style over fashion, like all the time mm-hmm. um, which and it's a, it's a pretty nuanced conversation because. On the one hand, I think the ideas that a lot of people in the men's style community put forward are those ideas that you are always talking about, which is, like, you know, buy less and buy better. You know, Mm -hmm. know where the stuff is coming from. Like, let's appreciate craft and, you know, appreciate craft personship. There's huge uh, ideas and inroads that people are trying to make in terms of, like, bringing manufacturing jobs back to America. That's, like, a big Mm -hmm. thing. And highlighting, like, heritage brands, like uh, Alden, the shoemaking making company, or uh, Frank Clegg, the leather workers who make bags, and, like, um, there's individual makers. Like, I have this beautiful custom hat made by a guy named Cody Wellema out in California who's, like, making hats in the traditional way. So, like, all of that is really amazing. And I think that it's fantastic, and uh, I think it's really cool. But <laughs> the nuance comes in uh, where, like, so what I was talking about was, in the, in the world of men's style, outside of fashion, there are different genres. There's, like, classic European style, like the Italian guy look. Or, like, maybe you're into the British suits, the Savile Robe suiting kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in America, the very classic, like, big style genre is what they call um, the Ivy League look. Uh, and some people call it trad, like, as in traditional I like um, to google that okay.
2: after your message, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think,
3: funnily enough, I think the people who call it trad more than anybody else at this point are the Japanese because they're like huge Americana. <laughs> oh,
2: for it is. sure. So Every they like. the time we go to Japan, that is what all the men's clothes are. My husband yeah. buys more clothes in Japan than he does here.
3: Yeah, a lot of guys do because the Japanese have a way of like you know taking things and you know doing them in. Usually, better ways than yeah, I think some people amazing. say. It's
2: always like better fabrics, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's specifically in menswear.
3: Yes, yeah. And the historical context of that is actually really interesting. I don't know if we need to get into it here, but basically, it's like they got obsessed with America after we were occupying them post World War II. Like, and they just got into, like, everything from jeans to Zippo lighters to pommies to leather jackets to, like, Brooks Brothers. Like, across the board, everything American. Anyway, within the Ivy League community are a lot of guys who feel that this is, like, not only is it the most American way of dressing, it's also the way of dressing that, like, they're the only ones who should be allowed to dress that way.
2: See, that's what bugs me. Because it also, if you're saying that they think it's like the most American way of dressing, mm-hmm. then what does that say about everyone who's not allowed to wear that?
3: And there you go. There you go. The there rough, you go. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing. I mean, like, you know, I've spent a lot of time in online forums, uh, seeing conversation. I tend to lurk. I don't engage in that way because like, <laughs> I, I prefer to listen. Uh, um, but like, there's this. There's like websites out there where like you just see guys who are basically like. Like, I think I mentioned one of my calls, like, you know, L.L. Bean will come out with a new ad that has, like, people of color in it or women wearing, like, these same, like, Ivy League staples, like the Shetland sweaters and the penny loafers and the khakis and, you know, like the, you know, duffel coats and all these things that are, like, all in that aesthetic. Um, and people will, like, just lose their minds about it. And it's that, like, it's that classic thing about, you know people trying to like couch their antiquated ideas in this belief that they're like under attack that their like mm. way of life is being infringed uh, upon classic that like if a, if they see a black man wearing some penny loafers it's like what what are you going to do next i'm not going to be a lot you know like it's, it's, it's <laughs> just the yeah, world like, caving in around them yeah um, totally but i think in that way this is a microcosm of, you know, larger things that we see in the world. You know, you, you talk about it a lot on the podcast, which is the idea of just the way that fashion is, is you know, a, can can be and often is a tool of capitalism. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there's a – in the in the same way, a lot of these guys speak and talk in the, the same sort of rhetoric that you see, like, to be completely frank, like incels using, but just re- – like, Ooh. you know, you know, who you know, incels,
1: right?
2: Oh, I know all about that. I mean, not like I don't know anything yeah. personally, but it's definitely, <laughs> yeah, I've kind of,
3: yeah,
2: read a lot of think pieces about, and I do spend a lot of time on Reddit.
3: So, mm-hmm. you know,
2: sometimes I have interactions with them there.
3: <laughs> yeah, they're, I mean, they're around, right? Like, they're always, you know, and to be completely honest, like, I think if you let enough like angry men in a room together for lost for long enough, like they're just gonna start it's only a matter of time before yeah. they start talking yeah. this way. It's true. But what I think what I think what I think is wild about it is that like this this idea of the Ivy League look as being so like traditionally white and like so American and so like it, one, it's it is a plainly white supremacist notion. Because it implies that 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 this is a, a a class thing and a and a, and a a race thing that like the you know that that white people are the only ones allowed to wear it. But in the same way that white supremacy is completely delusional about reality, <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> yes. the truth
3: of the people on those campuses at the time is that it was. I mean, of course, it wasn't crazy diverse because it was, you know, the 50s and 60s. But there's like this great Instagram account called Berkeley Breeze where this guy goes and uncovers all of these pictures of people on Ivy League campuses and it's like people of all colors, creeds, genders, shapes and sizes wearing these clothes in this context. And it like comp- completely undercuts this whole notion that these guys are holding that like you know, this is this is, this used to be the way it was, and it's it's suddenly now in this day and age being un, you know like it's under attack, and we're gonna you know we I mean, have to a, save our what ourselves.
2: A gross and frustrating way to live your life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh my God! Yeah, it's so bizarre. Can you like, imagine? I mean, it must be just so miserable, right? You just yeah, well I think that's angry it. all the time. Right. Yeah, I mean,
3: just enraged. Like you go and you see an like Polo Ralph Lauren ad, and they're like, oh, like,
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I can't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're just like, that's it. You know. You but
1: they like, show
3: up. So I mean, like, they 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 are always there, and they always have something to say. Like, I think um who is it? Uh, there's a um great. I think they're actually at this point the oldest retailer of those clothes that's still around and is kind of untouched. Because, um, like, Brooks Brothers has gone through, like, a lot of metamorphoses, but, like, right. J-Press uh is, like, pretty much exactly the same as it was back in, you know, the 50s and 60s. And it, they're, they started up in Cambridge uh, and sold to Yale students. Uh And they, they've really, like, stayed the course. Like, they – if you go into their store in New York, it's, like, the same as it always has been. And the clothes are made the same way, which is really good. I, I don't think yeah. that – I think that's, that's a good actually thing. actually amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's and it's it's cool to see this kind of cultural touchstone remaining strong, especially in, like in these times. I think that's yeah, you know, of, of such crazy corporate, you know, takeover and and economic hardship. But yeah. they, like, posted something recently where a guy was wearing, you know, like and this is funny too because I, as I recall, I think he was, uh, he was a younger guy, and I think he, I don't know where in the world he was. But he was wearing J-Press clothes, but, like, not in the traditional way. Like, he was sort of doing that, like, Tom Brown look with, like, the short jacket, short pants, oh,
2: you know, I love that sort one. of look. Yeah. I think
3: it's perfectly cool. Like, I don't think I could pull it off, but, like, anybody who can and who wants yeah. to, like, I have no issue. But these guys hate it. They There is <laughs> nothing they hate more than... Seeing people with short pants, <laughs> like, I mean, imagine,
2: imagine, <laughs> seriously, living that life.
3: <laughs> I mean, like, I, I, it's it's truly baffling. I mean, I, I think it just plays into this larger idea that there are so many people out there who are frustrated at the world, but in the wrong ways and for like way the wrong reasons. Like you, they, right now in America, like you could, it's so legitimate to be like mad at so many things that are oh happening. Like, yeah
2: yeah for sure like wealth, wealth in, better. <laughs> oh my
3: god yeah like there's wealth inequality shrinking middle class like the economic hardship the government's failed up on every level the, you know all this stuff and you're like if i see one more kid wearing his pants short i'm gonna <laughs> you know like i don't even know i don't yeah, even know what the,
2: exactly the exactly is. i mean it's like it's so fascinating to me um mm-hmm. But I do think, I mean, and I am not a psychologist. I took like the most basic psychology class in college. It seems to me that in a world where there are so many problems and it can become overwhelming to invest yourself in them emotionally, it's way safer to just get riled up about someone's short pants. Mm -hmm. Not that it's a good use of energy or something, but I also think it speaks to a certain level of privilege, where you're oh like, yeah. Oh, mass unemployment. Oh, exploitation of workers. Um, people getting sick and dying doesn't affect me. Let's talk about these pants.
3: <laughs> you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think the the group and the sort of style and stuff that I identify most with is like what people call like the classic menswear. Just like you know, nothing. I don't. am not. You know, no streetwear. Nothing. Nothing like particularly new. I mean, there are people you know are fresh with it, but like it's a lot of like tailoring and like mm-hmm. old, old classic masculine archetypes of clothing that's just how i choose to dress and a lot of guys do too but within even that world there's like definitely an in crowd of people like for sure like there are people they like they they, it's funny because they try to act like there are no trends and everyone's dressing classically and like you know all that stuff there there are and there are like influencers in the classic menswear world like absolutely um
2: so interesting to me like what are these influencers like like how old are they uh
3: so there's a There's a bunch, and it it, it varies. I I would say the vast majority of them are probably, like, in their late 20s through to their 30s. And then there are a few that are older. Mm
1: -hmm. And
3: in a lot of cases, it's, like, the guys who work at the very, like, trendy brands. Like, there are certain brands that sort of come and go, even within this... Supposedly trendless world of classic menswear, <laughs> uh, where um, I mean, I think that's just human nature to like gravitate towards new things. I mean, it's just it, I, I think people just do it. But like, there's like for sure, it, it this zeitgeist that's always floating around, and like everybody's into the same <laughs> gets into the same things at the same time. Like right now, for the past year and a half, everyone's been like obsessed with Negronis, you know, the cocktail.
2: Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which like. Which,
3: as a bartender, everybody was drinking them for a while, but like the menswear world world took it to like a fever pitch. Like just the amount of Negronis ever, and they're also always talking about it all the time. And you know, like
2: I, I wanted to like the Negroni, but I just I don't think I like the taste of Campari. It's got a little like bitterness to it that I'm not into. Yeah.
3: I think but, Hemingway, when he first had it, compared it to. I think he he said it was like a brass doorknob the first time he drank. From yeah, Marie. I think
2: that, yeah. that is a very apt description.
3: Yeah,
2: <laughs> but it doesn't surprise me. That is such a menswear drink to enjoy, and it is. Yeah, it is a classic cocktail. I get that. Um, it is, coffee, yeah. Like swingers era stuff of the late '90s and early '00s, like ruined martinis, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, probably even a manhattan to a certain extent we've been like systematically destroying the credibility of all the classic drinks (laughs) i know
3: i know there's like no like classic good cocktail you can order without someone thinking you're you're a dick like
2: (laughs) (laughs) totally Totally. yeah i i still have to say that like a really good dirty vodka martini is like the best drink ever especially if you're going to have like a steak or something so i'll oh yeah But I feel like a dick every time I order it.
3: Yeah, and, like, I can (laughs) – yeah. yeah. I'm the same way. I'm a martini drinker, too. Uh, Like, I I think they're great. But, yeah, there is certainly – like, I'm very cautious about – where I order Yes. Oh yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh yeah, it's funny like within, within these communities you see these guys are all drinking Negronis and suddenly they're all wearing corduroy suits. That might be like the thing. Or everyone the big thing right now too is like everyone's wearing Wrangler jeans. At really? one point someone decided they were all going to start they moved on from Levi's to Wranglers and now everyone's wearing them.
2: Wow, that's like,
3: fascinating. It, it, it's funny to see because, like, the I don't have a pro, like I don't have a problem with it. Like I'm, you know, I'm not bitter about it or anything. <laughs> um, but I do think it's <laughs> I think it's interesting to see these things that kind of run counter to each other in a way. Like it's a community that preaches individual style and like not following trends and not, you know, and like embracing the things that you're into. But like they're all wearing berets now and they're all wearing the <laughs> like the, the cowboy cut Wrangler jeans uh you know and like i think that's fine you know but i i do think it's ironic
2: i mean i think the cowboy cut Wrangler jeans is really funny also because suddenly my husband has adopted those, too, in the past mm-hmm. few months.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's definitely purchased
2: three or four pairs of the Cowboy Cut Wranglers in the Slim Fit. And uh-huh. I was like, whoa, where did this come from? I don't know. Maybe he's getting a little bit of that on his Instagram feed.
3: I think so. if he's, like, following any of the, the menswear community guys, then I I would say so, for sure. Because, like, everybody's wearing them.
2: (laughs) It's so weird to me, because of course, I don't fully know the history of the Wrangler jeans, but I... Uh My last job, we did buy from them, and one of our first meetings, they kind of gave me a whole whole dog and pony show about the history of the brand, etc. And specifically the cowboy cut and how they test a lot of new denim washes on the rodeo community. So... What I'm saying is that I don't really think of the cowboy-cut wranglers having – like, if there were a Venn diagram of men who wear cowboy-cut wranglers and men who dress like they went to an Ivy League school, I wouldn't expect them to intersect at all. I would expect them to be two circles <laughs> independent <interheaded laughs> of one another. So I think that's really interesting.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's one of the things. Like the, the Ivy League crowd are very reticent to admit that people wore jeans in – just like, back in the day, like, they're really uh, – but what's funny about it is that, like, they have this idea in their heads of what it actually was. But then I think it was in the 60s, these Japanese photographers came to America, and they went to, like, Princeton and Yale and a bunch of other Ivy League campuses and took a bunch of, like, candid photos of students walking around, and they put it in a big book called Take Ivy. Take um Ivy. And I take Ivy.
2: I feel like I want to look at that. <laughs>
3: You should. It's amazing. I mean, you know, in terms of, like, style inspiration, like, it's the coolest. It's cool coolest because it's just people in their natural habitat. It's a very particular, like, ecosystem of of style. Um, mm-hmm. But those like, are guys the, – the irony of what we were talking about with, like, short pants and stuff before is, like, all these guys are wearing, like, you know, like, sweatshirts and pajama pants on the way to class. Like, and, you know, <laughs> uh, their khakis cut really short, and you see, like, you know – all kind ty- like all kinds of different things cuz it's just like it's people but this is you know these ivy league guys have this august notion in their head that this was like the the peak of <laughs> masculine you know crew cut you know elegance of all these guys you know Coming home from the war. Do
2: they like to watch Dead Poets Society a lot? Is like that important <laughs> Maybe, film. Maybe I honestly
3: feel like I, to a certain with these guys, I feel like the presence of like potential homoeroticism and like art in <laughs> Dead Poets Society would turn them off from
2: it. <laughs> yeah, you're be, right. They would not right. like that. They wouldn't dig it. <laughs> it's way too <laughs> tangled. Yeah, I'm so glad we got to talk about this because it's like really. Well, on one hand, it gives me even more questions, but it's also mm. painting this picture of this, like, character kind of for me. All right. Well, I have to go finish making dinner now, but uh, right. it was so nice to talk to you, and I'll be in touch really soon. All right. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good night. My and My pleasure. Good weekend.
0: Well, I have some exciting news, which is that Kyle and some other special guests will be back next month with a special on men's clothing, so stay tuned for that. I've been thinking a lot about the book that Kyle mentioned in our conversation. It's called Take Ivy, and as Kyle discussed, this idea of gentlemanly style had been picking up momentum in Japan since the American occupation of Japan after World War II. As just about every other aspect of the fashion industry, this style was rooted in colonialism. And by the early 60s, designer Kensuki Ishizu was concerned that maybe Japan was falling behind in the latest American Ivy League gentlemanly trends. And staying on top of that was extra important to him because not only was he the owner of gentlemanly brand Van, he was also on the editorial board of Japan's first men's magazine, men's club. So Ishizu greenlit an incredibly expensive sort of reconnaissance trip to the east coast of the U.S. for further research. And this is how Take Ivy was born. I have to read you an excerpt from an article about Take Ivy from men's fashion blog, Heddle's. The eight-person team arrived in the U.S. in 1965 and were stunned by the dissonance between real Ivy League style and the Japanese understanding of Ivy. The original Ivy style was by now long gone. Students in the mid-60s didn't carry attache cases or wear saddle shoes. The resplendent sartorial formality of Japan's Ivy was nowhere to be seen. The crew was dismayed that no students wore the three-piece suits that were supposed to be the de facto Ivy uniform. Making Take Ivy challenged its photographers and writers by showing them that the style-conscious utopia they espoused and emulated maybe never existed. There is no bitterness in Take Ivy, however, only charming blurbs that summarize those ineffable elements of Iviness for an eager, newly style-loving country. And I will share some photos from both Men's Club and Take Ivy on Instagram this week, and it is interesting to look at men's club, which had really adopted what they thought Ivy League style was. Turned out it was really out of date, right? And so you really do see a lot of men running about in three-piece suits. Then you look at Take Ivy next to it, and it's, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's kind of like business casual. There's a lot of khakis in it. So I, I can't even imagine what a shocker this was for the crew. I'll also share the link to this article in the show notes because it goes into a lot more depth about the rise of gentlemanly style in Japan, which as Kyle and I discussed, lives on today in Japan in a pretty big way, kind of hand in hand with a very like rustic Americana style, like think like workwear and really, really nice denim, Western shirts, that kind of stuff. Talking about this actually is just making me long to go to Japan again. It's my favorite place to travel, and we were supposed to go there again in June. So I can't wait for the world to be better. That's one of the first things I'm going to do. All right. Well, I know I've been promising a segment about the nefarious origins of the anti-litter movement, and that will be coming on Sunday in our final episode of January, or as we know it, Trash Month. I'll also be telling you about February's theme, which I think you'll love. It's a theme that's near and dear to all of our hearts okay so let's have some more tea talk before we get into the second half of my conversation with Jackie I want to talk more about short-lived political and meme teas ever since the rise of the graphic tea in the 1970s which experts say we have the punks to thank for that I guess I believe that political graphic teas have been almost as popular as band teas with one major difference. Band teas seem to increase with value over time. I mean, hello. Some of them are like four hundred dollars online, right? While political teas, yeah, they're just they're just done, you know? Except for the rare collector here and there, no one cares. Unless you've been asleep for the past few weeks, and I wouldn't blame you for hibernating right now, it's actually a really good idea, then you know that Bernie Sanders' outfit and general vibe at the inauguration launched a thousand or, you know, I guess I should probably say thousands of memes. And it felt good, right? I mean, the last few years have been so horrible. It felt good to laugh. The rapid fire memes hitting Instagram, you know, they made us feel closer, Finally, we could all laugh together and it just felt nice. But then Bernie, or more accurately his campaign, released a line of clothes emblazoned with that image of him in his practical coat and recycled yarn mittens sitting on a folding chair. Okay, why am I describing this image to you? I know you know what it looks like. (laughs) So the sweatshirt, that's the style I saw. On the Bernie site, sold for forty five dollars, and according to the site, quote one hundred percent of proceeds go toward Meals on Wheels Vermont. Well, if you've been listening to Close Horse long enough, then you know that one hundred percent of proceeds means pretty much nothing, because there's like no legal sort of guardrails around that kind of language. It might mean one hundred percent of profits, but then profits is subjective too. So let's say the sweatshirt blank cost $15. I think you could get an alternative apparel blank for that cost, but I'm not sure what it would be made of, where it would be made, and who sewed it, so that's complicated too. And actually the site says it's an organic cotton sweatshirt and made in the USA, which by the way, doesn't always mean a living wage, as you know. (laughs) And that blank might cost more like $20 or even $25. I mean, it costs a lot of money to make things here, and it costs even more to make things here out of organic cotton. To make things here out of organic cotton and for all the workers being paid a living wage, well, that sweatshirt's going to sell for a lot more than $45. <sighs> anyway, but, you know, we're going to just be optimistic here and say, okay, this sweatshirt, this blank, it costs $15. Well, based on the art, that's a direct-to-garment print, which is you know all about now right from our last episode because it's essentially a photo which means it has practically an infinite number of colors in it so screen printing it is out it's really hard to screen print a photo now in my experience DTG, DTG, which is what we call it the lingo that's what we call it when we're up in the scene here it's way more expensive than screen printing but we'll just go conservative here and assume that it costs about $5 to print. It's hard for me to speculate on this stuff because I don't know how many Bernie's campaign is printing. So far in terms of cost of making the sweatshirt, we're at $20, but we also have to pay for the blanks to ship from the sweatshirt manufacturer to the printer. So let's tack on another buck there. And then let's add another buck to ship from the printer to the Bernie merch warehouse. Of course, in there, we're paying for someone to open all the boxes, put these things away, ship out the orders. I don't even know where to begin there. And oh yeah, we have to pay someone to create the file for the printing. So let's add another buck. So we're at $23. We know there's way more expenses in there. But if this were the end of the road, we would have had $22 in profit. But that is just generally not how this works. Because there are lots of other costs that are going to be added into this. We know this. And Let's be realistic here, the sweatshirt is being sold by his campaign, so some of that money is going to be held onto for the campaign. Once again, they said proceeds. They never really named a dollar amount there, and that always makes me nervous because it can mean so little and so much at the same time. Even if the campaign said, oh no, we're going to be doing this out of the goodness of our hearts. We aren't going to deduct any of our other costs. And we're just going to donate that $22 to Meals on Wheels. Well, why don't you just give $22 to Meals on Wheels yourself or the full $45? Like, do you really need that shirt? I read an amazing article this week on high snobiety by Leah McGarrigal entitled, We Need to Stop Making Memes into Merch. And she argues a few things. First off, The very nature of memes is that they come and go very fast. In for just a few days, forgotten when the next big thing arrives. You know that. We are never that attached to memes. From this article, quote, Back in 2018, Jason Wong, who's the founder of e-commerce site Dank Tank, that sold meme merch, told The Atlantic that the meme cycle was moving too fast for merch to be profitable. People today are consuming more memes than ever. The expiration date for them has shortened more since even last year. Memes used to last for two or three weeks, but recently we've noticed they die after just a few days. And you know what? I haven't seen a Bernie meme in a couple of days, so there's something there, right? I'll also just add here that there's this sense of urgency and great desire around these memes. You want to be the first person in your friend group to share them, and subsequently – the first person in your friend group to own the merch associated with it it's just human nature and the last few months there have been so many of these memes the fly on mike pence's head which led to the biden campaign making a fly swatter you could buy what about all of the four seasons landscaping inspired memes and products like Four Seasons Landscaping is selling stuff, but so are tons of other people on, like, Redbubble and whatnot. There's also really anything related to Rudy Giuliani at this point has been turned into a meme and probably merchandise. There was that time that Joe Biden said, we well, just shut up, man, or something like that during the debate. I saw a lot of shirts and other things that said that immediately afterwards. And this is just a little bit of it, right? There's just so much stuff being made out of memes political memes. There's other stuff being made out of other memes too. I'm just talking about the political ones right here for the most part. So all of these political memes had merch associated with them. And it's like, why? Because these don't stick around. And ironically enough, the Bernie merch doesn't ship for four to eight weeks, which is one to two months, when certainly the thrill of the meme will be gone. Like I said, I haven't seen anybody post a Bernie meme this week so far. And knowing that memes are so short-lived, so in and out at a rapid pace, the very definition of trendy, doesn't that remind you of something else that we talk about an awful lot around here? Something that's in and out, something that people impulsively buy, something that's really trendy? Oh yeah, that's right. Fast fashion. Why would a candidate who is essentially anti-capitalist and campaigns quite a bit around climate policy be participating in creating essentially fast fashion. A donation to Meals on Wheels doesn't cancel that out. You know, a few years ago, I was working for a company that was constantly selling fundraising stuff based on a meme or a headline, and it was, sorry for my French here, fucking horrible, okay? We were paying to air stuff in to get it faster. There goes the carbon footprint. We were squeezing our suppliers on costing so we could eke out every cent. And we were making a ton of shit that wouldn't be relevant by the time the customer received it. It also wasn't ethically made. It wasn't sustainably made. Well, it could be sustainably made if it wasn't ethically made. I mean, it was just like whatever we could get for cheap to print on. And then the donations from us, from those sales, would come so much later after we settled all of the accounting, you know, covered all of our expenses like graphic design, marketing costs, processing fees, shipping, and so on. It just, ugh. Oh, it felt so miserable and so unnecessary, you know? Now, I know you're arguing, Amanda, that was a fashion company. This is Bernie's campaign, so it's different. Well, I'm sorry. But Bernie doesn't run his campaign. Remember how he was too busy to be aware of the sexual harassment happening within his campaign? And you know, I believe that because he's busy being a senator, which is a pretty big job. Of course, he's not sitting around micromanaging the campaign. And he's certainly not working on the merch that it sells. Other people are handling that. It's the same thing with AOC's merch that we discussed a few months back. And lest you think I'm picking on Bernie here... I'm not. I think he's a delightful guy with a lot of really amazing ideas. I feel just as upset and frustrated by all that horrible MAGA merch. But the difference is that allegedly our side knows better and actually cares about the environment and workers' rights. We know that the MAGA crew thinks that climate change is a hoax and whatever nonsense they're spewing this week. Making any new article of clothing consumes water and energy. The very creation of a new garment generates a carbon footprint. That's why we should only be making things that we plan to own for a long time. Maybe you specifically plan on wearing your Bernie shirt for the rest of time, but many other people will not, period. You need to take yourself out of the equation and think about how human nature really works. I wish that these campaigns would just think it through a little bit more. Sell an iron-on that you can use on a tee you already own, or print print everything on like salvaged fabric or garments. There's so many things. Gosh, use recycled fibers, you know? But regardless, this political slash meme merch is important to us for such a small amount of time. And I would add here that these, these items, they have such a sad afterlife, Generally, thrift stores do not have any luck selling political merch after it's sort of lost its luster, so they bail it up and send it to the secondhand clothing markets. I will also add, some thrift stores, depending on who runs them, won't sell political merch at all. They don't even try to. They just put it in the bale and send it over to the secondhand clothing markets overseas. You won't be surprised to hear that people in other countries are even less interested in wearing our dated political meme shirts, so they won't buy them either. So they just end up in a landfill on another continent. Kind of a sad place for Bernie to end up, right? I don't want Bernie or AOC or anyone else who stands up for change to get sucked into this sad capitalist story that always ends in a landfill. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Why do we have to sell stuff to get people to donate money? I would ask this all the time at that job I was talking about. Why do we have to, I don't know, like, sweeten the deal of supporting a cause on any level? I I hate it. I hate that the rise of this sort of, like, charitable consumerism has allowed people to buy a shirt and check a box that says, boop, I gave back. No, that doesn't count. Studies have shown that people actually don't get much of a good feeling from this charitable consumerism. True donation, whether it's a person's time or money, always results in a truer, longer lasting sense of pride and accomplishment. And there are plenty of studies to prove that. I cited them way back in the first mini-sode about cause marketing. And as an ad bonus, when you volunteer your time or your money, you aren't sending another item to the landfill in a couple months. All right. Well, now that I've lectured you a whole bunch, let's get into my conversation with Jackie. Has this made you hate pop
4: culture? (laughs) Yes, in a way. I mean, you have to kind of be a nerd to do this job because you have to understand the different brands and you have to care about them enough to – Make a product that resonates with the other fans. So, in some ways, I really like that because I am nerdy about the things I like. I know Disney really well. I'm a big Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. I'm into Star Trek enough (laughs) that I can, you know, really champion that. But then you also have to like (laughs) learn about other things like Fast and the Furious. And then with something like the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda it just becomes so oversaturated and so just like just the constant references and this constant consumerism of nostalgia commodification of it it just gets really depressing mm-hmm.
0: It, it does. I think it does too. I mean, just once again, going back to this idea that Hot Topic has 100,000 teas on its site and that's because there's a market for 100,000 mm-hmm. pop culture teas, it like devalues the things that you love, yeah. you know? There's also like a certain ownership, like, you know, for example, your yeah. Ramones tea, right? Remember the early aughts when like every teenager store oh, was selling yeah. a Ramones tea? You can't gatekeep culture, but I was like, you don't even know the band, you're buying the T-shirt because you think it is cool, or you saw it in a magazine.
4: I definitely get frustrated with that. Like I was that ju- kid in junior high who would go up to these girls and be like, "Do you even know them?" But part of that was just kind of feeling resentful because I was also a teenage girl wearing a Ramones tee. So then that was kind of what people assumed of me. I knew the band. I listened to the music, and I cared about it. And I also think like. When you wear a graphic tee, you're making a statement
0: about yourself. So, why would you wear something that you don't know anything about? Right. I mean, that is perplexing to me because then, what if someone came up to you and started talking to you about the Ramones and you were like, I actually don't know them at all. I just thought this shirt was cute. I mean, like, how mortifying is that? And, you know, I think it's like, I mean, because I definitely get into arguments with Dustin about this too, where he will even be angry when someone's wearing a new version of a band tee. Where I'm like, yeah, but that kid really does like Nirvana. Yeah. There just aren't – like a vintage Nirvana t-shirt, it's like $400, you know what I mean? And like <laughs> I still see the value of how like your graphic tee helps identify like the other people who are like, you know, your community. You know, it's like your name tag for the world. And I I, I love that. I think it's 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 weird how, how much it's been commodified and that kind of bums mm-hmm. me out that like – we now don't know any other way to express who we are outside of wearing a t-shirt that says what we like, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Oh gosh. That's kind of depressing too. I know. (laughs) I know. I'm getting depressed right now, but it's like something, I think it's so interesting to think about that we've seen in our lifetime t-shirts become this massive business, specifically graphic tees. And because it's like an expression of who you are, like in the early aughts, graphic tees kind of came in like two categories. There was like, a band shirt, or there was like these funny, whimsical (laughs) shirts, you know? And those were designed to say like, hey, look, I'm a funny person. I'm ironic, (laughs) you know? (laughs) You know what I mean? And that was supposed to like draw people to you, right? And I think now it's like, look how much I love The Mandalorian in search of other people who like The Mandalorian, (laughs) you know? It's like a personals ad or something. And and it makes me wonder like where did we – Lose there was at some point there was a time where you would have to go up and talk to someone to get to know what they liked, and now that that doesn't happen anymore, and it's sort of like it's almost like this like tribalism around mm-hmm. your interests. And so you can go out and pre screen everyone by looking at their shirt and then determine who you're going to go talk to. I don't know, it's 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 like segments people and distances them even more,
4: yeah. That's kind of crappy. Like, I mean, how much can you really know about a person just based on what? show or band they like. like- I
0: know. I know. <laughs> it's sort of like this like classic teen movie trope. I love teen movies and teenage series. Like I love things about teenagers. And, you know, there's – it's like a trope of like that popular girl, it turns out I got to know her and she's also really into like spoken word poetry or something. Like She's deep, right? But now – we can't even do that because it's like, yeah, but she was wearing a shirt for a show I hate, so she's done, you know? <laughs> and it's also interesting to see merchandise, especially graphic tees, for cultural phenomena that didn't have any sort of tie-in back then. Like, I keep thinking about Friends, for example. Mm, yeah. I feel like the Friends t-shirt is a product of now. I do not think people wore Friends t-shirts in the 90s. I don't think they existed.
4: No. I. I mean, I wasn't. Oh, wear enough of t-shirts in the 90s. But I will say that when we get a brand like that, we'll go looking online for vintage tees to kind of get, quote, inspiration from. And uh, something like that, like Friends, I haven't noticed much versus something like Looney Tunes, where you'll find tons oh, of vintage an tea.
0: archive. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting just to think about that. Like, I received an ad on Instagram yesterday that was not off base for me. It was for... A like an account that sells exclusively Unsolved Mysteries merch. And there definitely was not Unsolved Mysteries merch in the original era of that show. Like no one would have worn (laughs) an Unsolved Mysteries tee in the 80s. It's just like not how the world existed.
4: Yeah, Yeah. no kidding. And I feel like print-on-demand must be driving a lot of that because what that allows too is a lot of like niche interests, including like – you know, secondary characters for superheroes, but also like really specific things. Like I brought up brats when we were talking earlier and how that blew up. And there weren't adulties for brats.
0: No. For <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good point. <laughs> I do remember, I think that maybe this phenomenon began in the, like the mid 90s because that's when you would start to see brands like i remember mighty fine i guess they're still around right oh yeah they would make like rainbow bright t-shirts which definitely didn't exist for adults when rainbow bright was first released into the world they would get all of those like nostalgic licenses through Mm -hmm. the 90s like my little pony i remember they had all these like vintage sodas like that kind of stuff and i feel like those kind of brands sort of led the way there and at that point still like wearing one of those like nostalgia tees was kind of like a fashion statement and not as like widespread as a, like a pop culture tee is now. But I think that's kind of where it began. And then like in the 21st century, I think t-shirts got easier and cheaper to make, especially mm-hmm. with print on demand that now it's like an essential, like people, people have thousands of t-shirts at home, you know? <sighs> yeah. So many t-shirts. I have so many T-shirts that they are divided between, like, this is a T-shirt that I would wear as, spe- as, as part of a special outfit. This is a T-shirt that I hold onto strictly for nostalgic reasons. I'm trying to preserve it or whatever. And then here are the T-shirts that I wear to bed or to, like, do <laughs> yard work or paint, you <laughs> know? work right. T-shirts. I've got those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's so funny because, like, T-shirts did not used to be something that you would even be seen in public, you know? That would be, like, mm-hmm. are you in your underwear right now? it's so fascinating and so because the market for t-shirts is so big there are so many bootlegs out there and you and i were talking about how there are so many on etsy and amazon and you said that it's actually really damaging when a bootleg is on etsy because it seems legit right
4: yeah etsy has this appearance of being like you know the local handcrafted artisan Merchandise <laughs> It does it does it,
0: it, it is not.
4: <laughs> and in fact, I've seen designs I did for my work on Etsy and they'll usually be like mocked up onto some sort of um, shutterstock or creative market template where it's like a flat lay of a t-shirt and some shorts and some cute sandals on some wood boards and that's and then you'll see I don't know a Marvel t-shirt laid on it. I'm like I know that Marvel T.
0: I designed that Marvel T. <laughs> and it's really disheartening. Yeah, I'm sure it is. And you told me that bots do this. It's not even like an actual human is there <laughs> taking a screenshot of your design and uploading it. Like it's automated.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure how exactly it works, but basically, I've read that bots will kind of screen these other T-shirt sites and somehow pull the image and create. I, I don't know what, how it works on their end, but they'll create the listing from that. And I know there's been trolls who have done it where like they'll make a graphic and it'll say like, this t-shirt's a bootleg on <laughs> <in> the graphic. <laughs> and um, a way that they kind of screen for that, I think on like Facebook or places where artists are posting, if somebody comments, I want this on a tee, that bot will scrape that
0: art based on that. Wow, color. that is... I mean, it's not surprising to me. So I was telling you back when I was in my era of my career where I was in charge of making and selling a lot of feminist teas. we specifically had a really iconic slogan that we were trying to copyright, but it was – I mean, eventually mm. we did. But it was It's really hard and we'll get to that. And it was like whack-a-mole <laughs> to go onto Amazon and type in our iconic catchphrase and to just all of the knockoffs of it. Sometimes they looked exactly the same. More often than not, they were in a horrible cursive font. That's that's where the bots go with this. And there would just be so many. And we would send these sort of like almost automated cease and desist letters to these people. They would disappear. They would come back a week later with a different account Mm -hmm. name, basically. And it was the same thing on Etsy. Now, my sister has told me that She definitely ordered a sweatshirt, and I've heard this from other people too, on Etsy thinking that it was once again this like mom and pop, small business, small (laughs) artisan she was buying from. It came directly from China and it was just like a piece of crap and poorly printed on a really bad blank and clearly not made by a human, you know, like Mm -hmm. in the way that we think of stuff being on Etsy, like carefully screen printed, you know, lovingly (laughs) signed. It wasn't like that at all. I sometimes like to just type in weird, bad t-shirt ideas just to amuse myself on Etsy and see everything that comes up. And it's really – like it's Etsy's full of crappy t-shirts. Oh, yeah. Amazon. There's not a lot you can do about it. Now, you said Disney has the best success in sort of taking these people to court or at least putting the fear of God in them, if you will.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Well, my company can only do so much. I mean, it's like you said, it's playing whack-a-mole. And When we see these things, there's so many, we just kind of ignore them. Um, But I would think if you're you're Disney or if you're maybe even a buyer, you have more power with your own brand recognition to kind of go after these
0: bootleggers. Yeah, yeah. What you would say as a person who perhaps has not had to work in this industry is like, hey, well, why don't you go out and just copyright this? (laughs) Like, that's your fault. And actually, I will tell you that – It is really, really hard to register your slogan especially, but also your art to a certain extent. Mm So if you want to just register a slogan, good luck. There are – basically if any word seems too common in use, you will not be successful. If it's a simple, clean font, you're not even going to be able to Mm -hmm. uh, copyright that art because – it's just like anyone could do that. There's nothing special about it. Kind of the more elaborate the art is, the better. But that can also still be really challenging. I came across some like best practices for copywriting a T. And mm. it was interesting because I was like, what are you left with if you follow all these policies? <laughs> so you cannot use images, characters, and any figure that resembles anything taken from comic books, cartoon networks, movies, video games, television shows, you name it, unless... You're someone like Jackie who's working with a licensor. But if you're just like random person designing tees, okay, good luck. Don't do any of that. You also cannot use logos, names, pictures of educational institutions, organizations, clubs, sports teams, musical groups, and artists. You must avoid logos, trademarks, and names of companies. Do not use a photo, artwork, or caricature of a celebrity. <laughs> also, and I have run into this problem at a job, You cannot take a celebrity's picture and use that on a T-shirt by drawing it in your own way or just Mm -hmm. adding some text. They will take (laughs) it to court. Um, So avoid that. (laughs) If you find an attractive graphic or image that is not listed for commercial use or free use, do not use it on your T-shirt design. That can also include fonts. Uh, Just what we often think of as like clip art or emojis or anything like that. If someone spots it, you will be in immediate legal trouble. Uh, use only images and graphics that are clearly marked as free for commercial usage, which doesn't leave much. Stay away from memes or viral videos that inspire you because many of those memes have celebrities and you're automatically going to be in trouble. (laughs) Do not use any images or graphics that you spot on social media or search engines to create your own t-shirt. When it comes to including some quotes on a t-shirt in the design, Avoid quoting anything from an author who is still alive or really anyone who is still alive. In the case of a deceased person, they need to have passed away at least 70 years ago. So you got to go way back if you want to start making t-shirt quotes. You should also not quote from any trademark material, literary works of art, and corporate slogans. Which brings me to, and I thought this was really interesting, I thought this was a good segue, talking about sort of like fan art because made me think of this is, I mean, I don't know if this is happening as much now because I I don't have to work in the t-shirt industry in the way I have for most of my career, especially in like 2016, 2017, 2018. I feel like this was the era of the like t-shirt that features some sort of female celebrity who said something really empowering, right? So it would be like, Hillary Clinton, her face, saying something, or Elizabeth Warren, or perhaps it would be all the Golden Girls, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. These things clearly are not copyrightable, and they do seem like they could be a legal issue, yet I don't think any of these people were getting sued by whomever owns Golden Girls, for example. Do you guys have a license for Golden Girls? That's one we don't have, actually. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised you don't. I am too. I think that that is really interesting because there are definitely legit, amazing, creative people who have been able to build a business off of making t-shirts, stickers, and pins of the Golden Girls or Hillary Clinton or Beyonce even, you Mm -hmm. know. Where is the line there? I see these all over the internet all the time, and I wonder, like, is it that these companies who own... The rights to these images, or like, you know, Elizabeth Warren, who owns the right to her own image, right? They're not like ready to go make an Etsy takedown of all these people, you know, be a really bad mm. look. But I have heard that like Beyonce can be really litigious. Like, if you happen to pass under her radar, she will send you a cease and desist, you know, rightfully so. I think that that is such an interesting phenomenon. And, like, where do you draw the line, you know? Yeah,
4: I know when we talk about it, I mean, I think more in terms of, like, the fan art, the kind of thing that you would see at Comic-Con that these kind of artists who have name recognition in their own right would be doing. We talk about that Mm -hmm. in terms of quantity. So if they're not selling a whole lot Mm. and they're kind of marketing it as fan art specifically, they generally don't get in trouble for it. Um, But I do see what you're talking about a lot, too. I see it on places like Etsy. And I've seen a lot of the things that you just read to not do being done
0: for like larger companies like yours. There are so many rules in effect for what you can and can, cannot use and how you can use it. But on the smaller scale, for the most part, you can kind of do whatever you want, unless you know you have the misfortune of like the person who's who is your inspiration finding what you have and are making and, like, getting offended, you know? It's, it's like, where do you draw the line? I think you're right, too. It
4: looks really bad if it's some, like, small artist that a big company is going after. I think so. I think so. Nobody wants to see that. So I think it's kind of these companies weighing mm, brand image versus how worth it is to them to get a little bit of money from this person. I mean, what are they really going to gain in the end? I have seen – so I've seen kind of like the higher quality bootleg kind of small print shop companies do better and better and become more popular. And one in particular, I remember, went from like an Etsy shop to to a licensed apparel company. No way. And, Who is it? Yeah. A Cakeworthy. Oh, yes. I'm familiar with
0: that brand.
4: Yeah. And I thought – you know, having worked in this industry, I wondered if maybe they had gotten some sort of letter where Disney was smart enough to see it as a business opportunity where they could make more money that way rather than just suing the person.
0: I know there was a graphic tea trend in the early to mid-90s was to take like a really popular logo for like a national brand and then change it into another word or like your own brand. Like I remember there was a brand called Fresh Jive that would do this a lot and A lot of these brands would be hit with cease and desist almost immediately from like, I don't don't know, Goodrich or something like that. It was always like arbitrary brands like that and it was a really bad look for them. And I feel like within a few years, it just turned into like now everyone can do this all the time. It's no big deal because no one wants the bad press.
4: Yeah. It almost seems like the more people do it, the less – Risks there is. But with my company, we we do follow a lot of these rules because we also get in trouble, um, particularly for like fonts or um, photography that
0: we've used. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so interesting because not only does like Hot Topic have 100,000 T's, but go on to Etsy and there's probably a couple hundred thousand more. Like there's so many T's out there that of course they all start to overlap. We're all in this like hive mind, you know? <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you were saying basically you guys have had little to no luck dealing with these bots. And like do you even yeah. like engage when you come across knockoffs or are you just like whatever? I don't think we do anymore
4: because I would see it and I would show my boss and try to talk to somebody higher up and be like, what is this? This is horrible. But it would just be more like
0: a commiseration and nothing would get done. <laughs> yeah. because It's just like you can't win. It is like whack-a-mole and it's just like uh, how many sales are you really losing to that that knockoff yeah. person you know what i mean it's just it's just not worth the legal fees and to pursue a case of someone knocking you off in court is just as difficult as pursuing getting a copyright for your art it's like just not worth it after a certain point i mean it would have you would have to be losing millions of dollars a year to make it worth taking someone to court yeah. And I think that's why larger brands can often knock off smaller brands, especially from a graphic perspective, because they know that the resources that that would, designer would need to take them to court, they just don't have. Like I always think of like Tuesday Bassin with all of her pins mm-hmm. and stuff copied by Zara. Zara hedged their bets that that Tuesday would not have enough money to press press them on it. And they were wrong because she pulled it together and did. <laughs> oh. <you know? laughs> Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she'll tell you, like, she was really lucky to have the resources to be able to, like, get a lawyer and really press them, and ultimately they settled. When she first reached out to them with a cease and desist, they were basically like, uh, sorry, but we're, like, a way bigger company than you, so no one even knows who you are, so they don't know we're knocking you off, basically. Yeah. They, like, swatted her away like a little fly. But I think the small artist
4: has the potential to gain more support on social media
0: Mm -hmm. and that would then make the larger company look worse. I think so too. And I think Lazara with Tuesday Bastion is a great example of that. And I think, you know, social media has many drawbacks, of course, but I do think it's a really great way to like mobilize people towards a collective action, you know, whether it's voting or supporting someone's fight against Zara, you know, and Mm it, it can put the fear into big companies. So like if whoever owns Golden Girls comes after you because you made Golden Girls candles, you're going to make them look like an asshole on the internet. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> so something, you know, we talked about earlier was this idea of like your T-shirt sort of identifying to others like what you're all about, which is a great transition into social justice graphic tees, which continue to be a big thing. Um. And they also, not that social justice is is not a meaningful movement, but I do feel like the overconsumption here kind of reminds me of, like, the It's My Sixth Birthday t-shirts. <laughs> like, I think about all the vote shirts from this year. Are people going to put them on every election day for the next 10 years? Probably not, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, of course, like top of mind is feminist T-shirts. And I'd ask you if you'd ever had to work on that because it seems like even places like Forever 21, which are not very feminist, make their own collection of feminist T-shirts now.
4: Yeah. Every buyer, I think, kind of wants to show that they're open-minded to social justice but without having to be very political. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> to look good.
0: So you get like weird shirts that say like "girl power" or "we are all one" or something like that. Where you're like, "Uh," like, what does that mean? You know. (laughs) Going back to what we were
4: just talking about, um, with you said it's really hard to copyright slogans, but we also Mm -hmm. have a list of trademark slogans, and it's usually super trendy kind of words, like "the future is female" Mm -hmm. or "namaste." Or oh. that, and we have to be very careful not to use those and I think but there's ways around them where you just kind of tweak it a little and yeah so that's how you get all those
0: weird slightly off slogans
4: that people don't say in real life
0: what a sad world in which "Namaslay" is copyrighted or suns out guns
4: out buns out oh uh, <laughs> is that copyrighted yes Oh my. We had to God. put all our sons out, buns out and guns out. I I'm wonder sure. who
0: copyrighted that. I need to, I have so many questions. because uh, I just thought that was like a thing that dad said or something. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I think it's the bots who are trying to like, I'm gonna make all the Namasley t shirts and probably
0: I mean, in the dawn of the internet, there were people who were really smart and had trollish impulses deep, buried deep in them who went out and bought all kinds of like URLs oh, in yeah. the hopes of like reselling them to people for like gazillions of dollars, which ultimately, you know, like paid off. I remember specifically one of my favorite stories about a URL disaster was Dick's Sporting Goods. So you would think that the URL for Dick's Sporting Goods would be like dicks.com. Of course, as I say this out loud, you're already like, oh, man. And I remember my mom was wanting to buy a new canoe. And I came over and I was like, well, did you look online? And she's like, well, I'll tell you where not to look. And I was like, what? And she was like, (laughs) dicks.com. Like, why? Were they, like, too expensive or something? And she was like, no. My computer got a virus. (laughs) And now every time I open it, a million photos of dicks pop up. (laughs) Oh, that's really and funny. it's because, you know, someone had bought dicks.com, so Dick's was using dicksportinggoods.com. Uh since this happened, this was like 10 years ago probably. Uh Dick's has reclaimed dicks.com. <laughs> <But> <laughs> I always I was just like how many like moms went on to like buy a new canoe we oh, no. <laughs> were bombarded by pictures of actual dicks. <laughs> um, so I can assume it's like similar kind of people who are like, I am now going to own Suns Out, Buns Out or whatever. Yeah. No, I think
4: that's what's happening. I think it's the same terrible t-shirts on Etsy and wherever else
0: uh, in the script. So. And like when you wear a shirt that says Namaste, for example, who are the people you're hoping to attract? It's a good question. Or, like, another phenomenon, like, a trend of t- graphic tees that I've seen in the past few years are, like, the word shirts that are, like, coffee, dog walk, oh, yoga, wine. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. I'd say we do those. Do you really? I mean, I guess they're, like, you can't really copyright those because most of them mm-hmm. are in a really basic font, you know, and it's just, like, words. Free association. I don't think you can copyright… When you make a design with a certain
4: font because when you're using the font, that font's like free for use or you bought it from someone, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like the the company where I we wanted to like copyright RT, we couldn't because we used a very basic font. Like I want to say it was like Oswald or something, which literally mm-hmm. comes with Google Docs. You can't copyright this art. Like the best thing you can hope to do – is copyright the phrase. But once again, there's like copywriting a phrase is so hard. It's like the longer the phrase is, the more likely you're going to be able to copyright it. But if it's just a couple words, good luck. And then it was like, okay, well, can we push for more graphic incarnations of the slogan so we can copyright those? I mean, it's kind of it's it's hard. It's hard to protect your intellectual property, actually. Mm-hmm. It's like really, yes. really hard unless you have like the power of Disney behind you or something. Right. And a legacy of these characters that you've copyrighted. So what's your favorite kind of tea project to work on? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um,
4: I really like working with the licensors who are really open to different artistic ideas um, or humor <laughs> I also really like working with um, kind of kids-type designs because there's a lot of freedom as far as graphic design goes where it's just like you don't have to follow rules. You can be really playful and use bright colors. It's very relaxing. (laughs) (laughs) And I like like that. (laughs) And, of course, I like working on properties that I feel really attached to. Um, One recently has been Rocky Horror, which was Uh part of my – college experience. Um, yeah, that sounds
0: fun. Yeah, and they're I,
4: pretty uh, open because they've been around forever. It seems like the longer property has been around, the more relaxed they are.
0: <laughs> Except for with music and like musicians and <sighs> bands. I was telling you how like even in my experience on the buyer end, it's been so difficult because when you're a buyer, like you always have some boss that you have to show all your your. Planned buy to. And they'll look at something like a Led Zeppelin tea, which Led Zeppelin is incredibly intense about the licenses, even though I feel like they have licensed their name and likeness to so many companies at this point. But they they literally have to improve every single change that's made in a tea before it can be made. And you'll have a, a like a you know buying manager who's like, I just I really don't like that, like, flower on the edge. Can you take that out? And you're like, um, it's going to take us, like, three months (laughs) to do that. (laughs) You know, like, they're really, really particular for the most part, which is funny because there are certain bands who, like, like, I feel like ACDC is one of those that has licensed they're, like, slutty about their <laughs> licensing, for lack of a better adjective. Like, they, you can go buy an ACDC t-shirt at, like, Walmart. Mm-hmm. You can buy a more high-end at, like, a boutique. I mean, like, there's a whole range in between. And yet they're still really picky about their art. They have to have final sign-off on everything.
4: Right. I wonder if that has to do with, like, it being an individual ba- band versus a corporation, but I know a lot of these bands are represented by these kind of roster licensing companies. Mm-hmm. Um, we work with Epic Rights, And like you said, mm-hmm. they're very difficult. And they only give us like, oh, you can have these guys. And the contracts are strange, I guess. So they're yes. like kind of in limbo.
0: It's really weird because I've worked with some graphic tea companies that you know specialize in rock tees because it seems like that's kind of the best way to go mm-hmm. because it's so different. And – Oftentimes, these graphic tea companies will have multiple brands under their umbrella that are specifically around certain price points. So it might be like, this is our premium brand. This is our like middle of the road brand. And this is our like junior brand. you know. And the art, you can't shift the art back and forth over silhouettes. You can't be like, hey, can I take the art from the premium collection and put it on the junior silhouette just because we wanted a muscle tee or something? It's like, no, sorry. We can't license anything being sold at that price point with this artwork and you're like what it's like so complicated yeah that's interesting
4: because that's um that's one of the areas where people don't really understand print on demand because we when we get a piece of art we want to be able to put it on every possible silhouette we have where it Mm -hmm. makes sense so when we're dealing with licensors who are very particular like that we just can't work with them
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, it's a really complicated industry in so many ways. Like you get like, okay, they don't like want you to make a Tinkerbell shirt where she has a bong, right? I get that. Uh, But if they were like, oh, but you also can't put it on a muscle tee, that's like not our brand. It's like, whoa, you know, so specific.
4: Yeah. And sometimes they can be kind of gendered
0: too where it's like, this is a
4: female design.
0: (laughs) Yes. I have totally seen that. Yeah. Yeah. Or buyers dictate that as well. Oh, um, I'm sure. I'm sure. Buyers love rigid and out-of-date gender roles. Especially the ones who want to promote diversity and I know. oh my gosh, don't get me started. I think it's funny, like when you were talking about buyers being like, Well, we don't we want to be political without being too political, you know? Mm-hmm. I would say like and this is a broad generalization because I've worked with plenty of woke and engaged buyers in my career but a majority of them are sort of like "Mm, I'm just like I'm not into politics like it's that kind of crowd and you're not supposed to talk about politics at work anyway so it's like everything becomes apolitical (laughs) and like watered down and weird you know so Mm -hmm. I I thought that was really funny I was like picturing different buyers I've worked with over the years picking out quote political graphic tees and kind of (laughs) laughing to myself like just picturing what they would they would choose (laughs) Not all buyers, okay? Just a big chunk of them. Yes. <laughs> so what would be like your dream license to work on? Oh, um,
4: at this point, I feel like we have them all.
0: <laughs> you do, I guess.
4: Well, when I first started, I really wanted Buffy and we finally got Buffy. That's Buffy the Vampire Slayer like last year and it's been great. <laughs> I love working on it. But I'd say with all the different licenses we have, we just don't have time to work on the ones I really want to work on.
0: I'm sure. I mean, I can't even imagine how you break up your time. I'm sure some licenses you don't have to touch as often as others, but you guys have a lot going on.
4: Yeah. And it's not just like we want to make sure we can get the licenses we need, make them art. So that's usually going to be somebody we just got. We want to show them designs, show them what we're capable of, or it'll be buyer driven where they want to see something specific from a certain license or it'll be like movie driven release some new release for like marvel or it'll be seasonal and we'll be working on like all the christmas or all the Mm. halloween kind of thing yeah yeah so all that comes first basically
0: so do you have any like final thoughts or anything else you want to add for the listeners
4: i guess i want to say that overall i do like my job i When I first emailed, I kind of was listening to the podcast and it occurred to me that what I do is actually within this apparel industry. So as I started to think about it, I started to think about kind of the the negative impacts that I feel torn about, the overconsumption, the waste, the one-off t-shirts. But I feel torn about it because on a daily basis, I do like what I do. I feel very lucky to one, still have this job this year, and to have found a job that allows me to do a lot of really cool, interesting art with my d- degree, mm-hmm. which I was always really afraid of, that I wouldn't find something I really liked in design. So I feel like it's a good fit for me, but I do, I do wish it the end product was a little more meaningful.
0: I mean, it sounds like a fun job to me, you know, to get to be creative every day. Um, And I I totally understand how you feel because it was like a certain feeling for me working as a buyer and like a product developer to know that like the product I was making was not great for the world. It didn't have a great impact. But the process of creating it was so fun and rewarding to me, like on a personal level, just to work on something that involved like using all these parts of my brain and being creative, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough balance. And I don't think anyone should feel bad because they work in an industry that may not be ultimately like great for the world. But I do think that you have this like power to work within to slowly make it better, you know? Yeah. And I'd like
4: to see my company strive to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's how we make these changes. So I, I think it's, I think you have so many people's dream job for sure. <laughs> we all have to work, right? Well,
4: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even through all the uh, ugly sweaters and <laughs> <laughs> there's something fun about it. Like when I make an ugly sweater or shirt, I kind of like the puzzle of putting it together. There's a lot of different ways to use my design brain and it's, it's a good job.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it sounds great. And I totally, like I said, I used to love the art of like solving complicated problems every day at work, you know, even if we were making like fast fashion, you know? And
4: there is some joy, like before this, I was a barista. And what I really liked about being barista was I got to make something and then hand that straight off to a customer who like was so happy to have it. And so that's, Something I miss is kind of that direct interaction. So I'll go through reviews and I love when I see a happy review, especially with a photo because I am glad that person (laughs) liked my t-shirt.
0: I mean, I bet. I just have to say as a side note that barista was one of my favorite jobs ever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Much better than waitressing in retail. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I can't explain it and you get plenty of duds. When oh, you're yeah. baristaing too, <laughs> but <laughs> somehow it's just like more fun, you know? Yeah, and I don't know what it is, but it just attracts
4: really interesting people. Like I made my best friends as a barista versus my other <laughs> part-time
0: college jobs. Yeah, it's true. You always meet the coolest people working in a coffee mm-hmm. shop. I like – some of my oldest friends are my older barista era friends. I've definitely oh, – I worked at Starbucks for a long time and then I worked at Barnes & Noble proudly serving Starbucks coffee.
4: Oh, yeah. And I loved it. <laughs> I was at Pete's in the Bay Area. Ooh. And I loved Pete's and I loved um making the drinks and learning how to do that. Yeah. And I love how every morning it was like the same people and it's almost like a bartender that way where you it is. To know you
0: build up a relationship with your customer, which when you do what you do now or you work in a more corporate level, the only way you get to do that is by reading the reviews, which I also mm-hmm. love doing. And I, it's kind, it's going to be kind of exciting to you. I mean, I don't know if you have you ever gone out and seen someone wearing a shirt that you designed.
4: I don't know if I've seen someone wearing a shirt I've designed, but I've seen them wearing shirts my coworkers have designed, which is really exciting. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I will say my One of my coworkers had this experience where they saw like, I think a younger person like a teen or a tween wearing one of their shirts and they told them hey I designed that and the first the kid said no you didn't <laughs> so, usually you just kind of sit there proudly and don't tell anyone you designed a t-shirt
0: yeah that's really a better approach <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to unpack the world of graphic tees. Absolutely, had a great time. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Jackie. It was so fun. We're working on some cool stuff with Jackie over at the Close Horse Blog, so you'll be seeing more of her in the near future. I just want to touch more on the bots, like copycat bots that we talked about. So apparently there really are bots who are going around the internet sort of like harvesting t-shirt designs. Like what is this weird dystopian future that we live in? (laughs) And some of the affected artists, they actually have an idea how it's happening and it's so weird. So Rob Schamberger is a professional artist who works with the WWE, and he talked to the BBC about this. This is what he said, I noticed the trend was it always happened whenever someone responded that they'd, quote, love to have this on a shirt. Someone has programmed something to search Twitter for a phrase such as, I want this on a shirt. It takes the image, puts it onto one of these t-shirt selling websites, then sells the products more or less instantly. It's automated. So there's there's no person creeping around on the internet harvesting art. He also warned that the websites where these items are sold may not even necessarily be above board and the customer may never even receive anything. He said, some of these websites may not be legitimate at all. They could just be taking people's money. This is kind of a more insidious and nefarious thing. So if you respond to my artwork saying you want a shirt of this to protect my work, I have to block you. I know this sounds pretty wild, but other artists have put this to the test by creating wacky shirts that like no one would ever buy. Then having a friend comment, hey, I would love to have this on a shirt and boom, that shirt would appear almost instantly for sale somewhere on the internet. What a weird weird world we live in. If we can create bots that just search for art to steal, can't we come up with some solutions for climate change? I'm just saying. I feel like we have the know-how. We have the skills, we have the passion. Let's let's, you know, funnel that into a good cause. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Of course, I'm going to say that. And don't forget to tell your friends, your mail carrier, I I don't know, people that you're in a Facebook group with, maybe for your neighborhood. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. You can join in on all of our Clothes Horse adventures on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way, via email at amanda at clotheshorse.world. The first ever close horse blog contributor info session happened last week but it's not too late to get involved if you're interested please email me and it's so important that you email me not dm me at amanda at closehorse.world then i can forward all the information to you if you message me on instagram i'm going to tell you to email me it's the only way i ensure that i don't forget there's just a lot going on right now and i don't i don't want to disappoint you so please email me the site's going to be launching on 2-14, otherwise known as Valentine's Day, but we will be needing new content constantly, so don't worry about being too late to the party. We need you, so come and come and get on board with us. Also, if you want to meet other close Horse listeners, you can join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group. It's, it's getting bigger every day, and I'll share that link in the show notes. If you need a new podcast, because what else is there to do right now? Well, you could also learn how to make candles, and do some other craft projects, but you could also listen to a podcast while you were doing that, you might want to check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, and specifically right now, we're in the midst of a series about the early aughts, which are kind of so weird, I can't believe I lived through them. This week, we talked about Von Dutch, Ed Hardy, Rock of Love, and so much more. I will share a link to that in our show notes. Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.